0: If we
1: can't reopen our society in the next few weeks, when will we? Those of us who make these rules have got to stick by them and that's why I've got to resign.
0: We've seen chaos, confusion and cronyism at the
2: heart of government. Politics doesn't have to be a raging fire destroying everything in its
0: path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war.
2: Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. When the pandemic hit last spring, more than half a million people lost their jobs. With bars, restaurants and beauty salons shut for long periods of time, the government spent about £100 million on job support schemes like furlough. Since then, the jobs that are being advertised are often home working with an increased demand for high skilled jobs. So what happens next? Is the pandemic an opportunity to reset the way we think about work and create a better future for everyone? Or will we go back to the old way of doing things? Joining me to talk about this, Dr. Alex Williams, who's a lecturer in digital media and society, and Dr. Andrea Kalef, who's a lecturer in economics, both here at UEA, and of course, Professor Alan Finlayson here as always. So gents, what do we think? Is the pandemic a threat or an opportunity for the world of work?
0: Well, I'm looking forward to hearing what these guys have got to say about it, because the pandemic's absolutely transformed my working experience and working life uh, in ways, some ways that are good, I have organise my day differently and I have a different kind of freedom. But some ways that are bad, I miss my colleagues. I don't get to see them and I, I don't quite know where it's going and I don't know what it's like for other people. There must be very significant shifts going on, I think, underneath all of this and I really want to hear about.
2: Andrea, let's start with you. What are the significant shifts that have been going on?
3: For sure, many of us experienced uh, working from home. Uh, for most of the jobs, this was something uh, unthinkable. But now it became a reality. We had... Uh, as academics lectures from home with students that were uh, in part from home as well and this occurred for many other sectors such as the financial sectors the consultancy sectors and so on and so forth however i also think that this threat must become an opportunity to rethink how we consider the work how we consider the work-life balance and we all of us experience some difficulties, but they can become a strength for the recovery, which is already occurring.
2: Alex, is it an opportunity for you or are you worried about what's going to happen?
3: Yeah, I think it's absolutely an opportunity. I think
1: it's a a massive opportunity for, you know, really all participants in this discussion to reframe the way that they're thinking about work. So, you know, this would include um, certainly employers from the point of view of, you know the way in which they are going to organize work the way in which where work is going to happen so a huge thing i live in london and you know there's a lot of debate about whether the, the center of the city of london is going to continue in its present form because so many of the large you know financial employers and so on are thinking about do we really need all this office space now we've we've had all these people working from home and it seemed to work um okay and you know maybe they don't need that anymore so it's so the the changes in the nature of work are going to affect not just, you know, people's work lives, but also the way our our cities are designed. It's going to have knock on um, environmental effects. But I think what we need to be slightly wary of here um, when we're thinking about this is, you know, who gets to have a say about this? Is it going to be, you know, what kind of say a worker is going to have in this? Because there's been a certain, you know, um, image of maybe the kind of successful home worker during the pandemic who maybe has their own home office. Um, maybe they don't have screaming children in the background, but there's been plenty of people, especially um, people who have a lot of caring responsibilities or who have, um, or younger people maybe who are living with flatmates or with um, their parents who have, who have found this kind of new um, order of working to be quite stressful and difficult. Um, so I think we're going to have to take quite a, um, quite a kind of all-encompassing view to make sure that, that certain groups don't end up um, being disadvantaged. But yes, definitely a big, a big opportunity, potentially.
2: So let's hear from some of those workers. Our reporter, Myra Nushka, has been out to see how the pandemic affected traders on Norwich market.
4: Today, the market is busy, despite the slightly overcast and rainy weather. There's music playing, there's people milling around. And most of the Norwich stalls have reopened for business now that restrictions are being eased.
3: Hello. What's up? Hello. <laughs>
4: I want to speak to David Neach, who works at one of the market's oldest fishmongers.
5: Uh, I work for City Fish on Norwich Market. Mm. Obviously, Uh, business belongs to Sam. Uh, We've been here fourteen years. Is
4: that how long you've been?
5: I've been. Yeah, I had my own business before. Usually,
4: City Fish boasts two impressive stalls, both facing onto Gentleman's Walk. But for the last year, their takeaway shellfish bar has been closed, which has had surprisingly profitable results. Because
5: we've only got one stall open than having two, it's all come over here, so we are taking more... Well, I suppose if that was open, that would be a better sign, possibly.
4: I asked David how lockdown was for the stall, and his answer was not quite what I expected.
5: That was quite nice, actually. You know, it was um, quite more relaxed, I think. I personally preferred the lockdown. (laughs)
4: Unfortunately, David's optimism about the pandemic is not shared by everyone at Norwich Market.
3: I lost more than 70% of my business. I lost.
4: This is Mohammed, the owner of Men's Barber Downtown Cuts. The beauty and hair industry took a big hit last year with minimal government support. A report by the National Hair and Beauty Federation found that industry turnover fell by almost half in 2020 and that 62% of salon owners were unsure whether their businesses would survive at all. Mohammed blames the lack of footfall.
3: Well, it used to be business, but not after the lockdown. People are still even scared to come out. There is nobody, how I say people are not coming to the city, if you know what I mean. Like, this is few people, like, I know them personally, you know what I mean. But as my normal customer, I haven't received any customer here.
2: So that was Mohammed ending that report by Maya Anishka. Um, Alex, it's interesting, isn't it, how those we were talking as university lecturers as being able to work from home, but for those staff on Norwich Market, it's had a huge impact on them.
1: I think that's right for people who you know are not white collar workers; they're not working largely um, through computers. Uh, you know the experience of the pandemic has has has, has been quite different, and, and maybe in some cases, as we heard, uh, certain workers quite liked it for some reasons. But I think for others, um, it's proven to be incredibly stressful because they're effectively having to do the, the same job they've always done under incredibly trying and perhaps even um, dangerous conditions. Particularly if you're, you know, a frontline medical worker or a working, you know, maybe as a bus driver. Um, those workers were put under, under real risk during the pandemic and I, don't, I haven't really seen much discussion around changing the way that they work, but, but maybe we should be, but I think at the moment the discussion is largely stuck at the level of homeworking.
3: Yes, true. Uh, we should not forget, perhaps we don't play too much, the fact that uh, for, them, for some of these uh, sectors, the, the work can change too much, but the risk increased. And we have overlooked to the people that are on working and probably much of the research as well has been done on them. But those who are not able, because of the apology of work to work from home are also those who are providing essential services. So um, the government uh, as well as local communities should think about to the fact that it's strategic that these uh, works keep on safely, because uh, now we are going out from this pandemic, but we don't know. There might be future pandemics and we can't be uh, uh, unprepared as we were this time. So
0: so the pandemic is has is, is sort of generated certain kinds of inequalities in terms of people's work experience and the risks they're facing but I guess these are not new new inequalities is this just showing to us inequalities that already existed but weren't so apparent is that what's happening here or is it making things worse or different how do you see that
1: I think it's certainly changing the, the the nature of the inequalities and it's 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 putting the world of work under a unique set of pressures which are maybe being differentially applied depending on you know whether you can work from home or not the nature of those pressures is different but I guess the, the the kind of the underlying structural conditions are the same but the kind of pressures have the, the the pressures that are being applied to them have changed quite a lot so I think I think there's you know you, you you're you're seeing a world in which people are thinking about work work has been denaturalized I think it's no longer just like this is what we do we've always done it I mean we can see that in our job as university you know lecturers and researchers that that it's changed in many ways I think for everybody it's changed, even if you weren't working from home, if you were continuing to do the same kind of um, face-to-face in-person labour, the conditions have changed a lot. And it's, it's you know, it has raised, I think, to, for a lot of people, you know, what is the nature of the work that I'm doing? Is it right that I should do it in this way? And I think that's interesting. I mean, my question is just really is, is if this opportunity is going to be embraced, or if, you know, it's going to be squandered. And I, I think that's probably not a question about About work per se or the pandemic, it's really a question about, you know, politics and the ability of workers to kind of organise, because if they if they don't, then it will just go along the lines of whatever is most kind of convenient and cost effective for employers.
2: Alan, do you see workers organising themselves into unions to change their working practices. A lot of people have said to me, oh, actually, I quite like working from home. I don't want to go back to the workplace again. Or actually, this has made me reassess and I'd, I'd rather go part time. Do you, do, you, do you think that's going to happen?
0: No, no, I think what Alex raises is a really interesting point, because we might on the one hand, there already is some union based campaigning around people's work conditions and around where things will go after the pandemic. But maybe what there will also be is different ways in which people organise politically in relation to their experiences of work. It could become more of a national political issue affecting how people vote, which parties they support, that's possible, but also other kinds of campaign activity might also be um, taking on the role of contesting or arguing about people's workplace relations. So I think we might also see different kinds of politics and organising around work that, that, that begin to develop as a result of all this.
3: It's interesting because politics will have division on the long-term goals. And some of what we are witnessing now were already present underlying trends. So think about the change in technologies. They were already established. I'm thinking to blockchain, to encryption cybersecurity, big data. These are key words that we often listen, but we were used to listen even earlier than the pandemic. Now, according to the World Economic Forum, these types of jobs are going to be better played and increased in shares um, with respect to the overall working population. And this should make the politicians reflect that high-skilled workers are going to be better off while low-skilled workers will be worse off. Overall, the society will be better off, but we must think if we are truly a community, a co community, we must think about who are going to be the losers and give them the opportunity to retrain and find a better job in the future. Otherwise, the short-term unemployment rates that we're witnessing now will become longer term and some of our because citizens will not be able to find a job in future.
2: Well, let's talk about some of those um, so-called high-skilled workers. University students are due to graduate across um, the country in the next few weeks, but getting a job during a pandemic for many of them feels almost impossible. Reporter Sean Roach has been to talk to students at a house in Norwich to find out more.
4: Does anyone want to tea? I've sent off heaps of applications, but some of them just don't get back to you at all. Some of them just like flatly reject
2: you. I mean, I can't let it get to me too much. I still need to get a job. I can't just (laughs) wallow. But it's definitely a bit of an uphill struggle at the minute.
5: This is Holly, a biochemistry student at the University of East Anglia who's graduating this year. She's echoing the thoughts of many students around the country who feel their job hunts are at a dead end. I
2: think it's definitely been made more difficult by coronavirus and the pandemic. There's a lot fewer jobs and a lot more people applying.
5: She's not wrong. A recent study by Jobsite Indeed has found that jobs for university leavers in the UK have fallen by by 24% compared to before the pandemic, whilst postings for paid internship roles have fallen by 41% compared to 2019. Lynn Squires, head of business development at the Chartered Institute for Legal Executives, explains this is because coronavirus has led to lots of businesses stopping taking on new workers, at least in the short term.
4: COVID put a lot of businesses into pause mode.
5: So not stopping, but not expanding, This is echoed by Claire Bainon, Talent Acquisition Manager at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Enterprise is one of the country's biggest graduate employers employing between 800 and 1,000 recent graduates per year, but COVID has led to their practices changing
4: been a bit of a rocky road looking at the last 12 months. We're probably hiring two-thirds of what we would typically hire but hiring hasn't stopped so we certainly have opportunities and it's just slightly lower and actually as we go into the autumn we're probably going to be back on where we were pre-pandemic level.
5: This scale back of graduate recruitment is also likely to save companies money. Hiring more experienced staff means less must be spent on training costs. Adrian Jolly, a careers advisor at the University of East Anglia, is optimistic, though. For those people who are graduating this year, I'd say there are a lot more opportunities out there. Including in industries that struggled during the pandemic. Roll them. Action. There is a complete resurgence in the film production and television production industry because there is now a demand that's been held back for 9, 10, 11 months.
2: That was Adrian Jolly from UEA's Career Central, ending that report by Sean Roach. Andrea, you're one of the lecturers in economics whose focus is on student employability. What have you noticed over the last 18 months or so?
3: My whole teaching is focused on employability skills because I know I was in the job market earlier than the pandemic and I know how much competitive it is. But now it's even worse because it's not only that there, there were there have been uh, fewer job vacancies, but the fact is that the whole recruitment process has changed. For example, all the interviews are uh, carried on online. LinkedIn is much more widespread now for job advertising, and students need to readjust uh, their soft and hard skills in order to find a job
2: it it seems to me that the the job market's kind of undergone this massive shift you know maybe i don't know a decade's worth of change in 18 months or so is it a a case of all workers needing to upskill or reskill and is that is that possible is that is that feasible
3: i think that this depends on the sectors Uh, But uh, I also think uh, that some sectors such as the automotive, which is quite labor intensive, now is using more and more robots. And to be able to use robots, you need to have different skills from those that have been the needed ones in the past. So both low-skilled workers and high-skilled workers will have to retrain. Also because uh, the job market is becoming more and more global. If we consider London, the job market is not simply the uh, Great Britain market. It's really competing. You're really competing with um, candidates from everywhere in the world. And now that people and employees learned the benefit to work from home remotely, it will not be surprising if some sectors you really are competing with people living in different continents.
2: Alex, we we talked a bit about um, upskilling and reskilling. With these inc- increasing technological changes, do you think that's going to lead to an increase in inequality as well?
1: Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think when it comes to thinking about the kind of, sort of future trends that were occurring already, but which the pandemic has kind of catalyzed into a higher gear, um, I think I think amongst those we have to be careful because there's a kind of there's a simplistic kind of model where you know these trends are, are simply mean we can upskill, we go up the value chain of work, and and you know, it's a bit of a, a tricky um developmental process. But once it's done, you know, we've got you know a, a a more highly skilled workforce that's earning more money. Um but potentially, and this is something my research has focused on in the past, potentially that isn't necessarily the case. And you can certainly see that in areas. Um, you know where um, AI or what should properly really be called machine learning are kind of taking hold. As you can see, this in the recently released um, GitHub Copilot uh, utility, which, if you're not aware, is uh, uh, GitHub is a kind of like a collaborative platform which on which people share um, coding projects and, and, and kind of get advice from each other on them. Copilot, it's, it's owned by um, Microsoft, I believe. And they've basically developed an AI system. So these kinds of things are going to really potentially eat into what has been considered to be the high, you know, really high value work. You know that we should all go and learn to code, um, and the kind of innovations that we're seeing elsewhere as well could potentially eat into other kind of highly skilled work. So if you're looking at things like, um, I'm thinking of things like lawyers, for example, a lot of work that kind of junior lawyers would do is um, it's called discovery. It's where you go through a pile of documents around, around a given case and you're trying to look for notable things within it you can you can tell your kind of superior that, that they need to look at. And it turns out that machine learning systems are very, very good at, at doing this kind of scanning um, and noticing. So I think it's complicated looking, looking into the future here because um, it may well be that there are you know, certain types of high school work uh, are kind of future-proofed in a, at least for now, but others, other ones that we used to think were quite high skilled, um, but which actually were quite kind of ultimately mundane, non-creative, um, maybe they maybe they aren't going to be as resilient. And I think certainly you can see a lot of signs. You can see these last year, and they've, they've kind of been confirmed now that a lot of companies have invested more in automation because of the kind of the pressures of the pandemic. That especially if you're you know, given the kind of hiccups that we've seen in global production around various things, you know, machine learning is a great way and automation is a great way of kind of trying to protect your, your product and your productivity in the future. Um, so that could potentially be a problem if we're thinking about, you know, simply, um, you know, traditional methods of upskilling. When it comes to um, inequality, I mean, I think the biggest inequality we've seen is between people who have to go to work and people who can work from home and that was already an inequality before the pandemic but it's just become a lot sharper because the risks of being outside the risks of having to interact with people face to face could potentially dependent on how old you are what pre-existing conditions you have could be life and death um and you know we saw lots of i don't know bus drivers who died because they were they were having to you know be in a public facing role without without sufficient protection so i think you know that's and that is basically a class, a class inequality and that that is something that, um, you know, the, the distinction between blue and white collar work uh, uh, has been around for a while, but there are complexities to this. So, you know, if especially if you're looking at kind of the UK, a, a large number of people who work in, um, you know, professions where you're kind of f- physically manipulating things, a lot of them, uh, you know, it turns out nowadays are more highly paid than a lot of the white collar workers, particularly if you look at the kind of things, you know, referring back to the idea of university graduates a lot of university graduates right now are kind of facing a bit of a um a perilous situation where um you know there's a lot of uncertainty whereas if you're i don't know you've re- you've trained as a plumber or a builder that is, those are currently the most needed professions in the uk there's, there's an incredible shortage post brexit of uh, plumbers and, and builders electricians and so on and you can earn very, very good money doing that, which is, you know, maybe shows the ways in which um, the future labor market is, is is perhaps
3: less aligned to our kind of um, conventional visions of it. It's quite interesting because the most recent data that I was able to visualize uh, on the UK labor market uh, is pretty coherent with the stories in terms that... Um, those who mainly worked from home had uh, experienced a lower probability of being promoted than those who worked uh, outside that could not do differently. And at the same time, who worked remotely uh, made on average more hours of uh, unpaid work. So this perhaps might be a signal that even employers are start to consider other features when they have to uh, hire uh, a new employee or promote an existing employee. So uh, productivity is important, but we discovered that also resilience was rather important during the pandemic period. Whether this is a a trend that will uh, continue after, The pandemic is still unclear because we need more time to investigate. But for sure, we discover that inequality is not just uh, uh, in monetary terms, but there are other aspects of inequality that uh, we should consider and politicians should then consider.
2: For home workers, it's not all been all banana bread and lions, has it? We we have found that we've had to do a lot of unpaid work and, and being able to switch off your machine when it's in your spare room or in your living room is is difficult.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's a really important point. And you know, the point about kind of the increasing amount of unpaid hours effectively, unpaid additional work that people are doing if they're working from home through kind of, you know, electronic devices. I mean, this was something that was that, you know, many kind of people had theorized beforehand, before the pandemic. And it was this was clearly a problem with, you know, smartphones and with you know, the ability to do work from more or less anywhere. Um, but I think the, the pandemic has definitely accelerated this because your, you know, your workplace is literally your home now. Um, so, you know, you could always be, you you could, you know, you're literally in the office all the time. You sleep in the office now. So I think this will put um, rocket boosters under, under, you know, calls for firmer labour market policies and firmer kind of policies from employers. You know, can we get firm... Um, switch off points for when we have to check emails um, and this has been a debate you know at, at UEA you know lots of people say I'm not checking my emails after this this point in time and that just shows the necessity of having um, kind of hard borders on 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 when we're working and when we are not because effectively you could have a real issue with um, both exploitation also burnout if people are working you know or or constantly feeling like work is a is a presence in their life and that you know the kind of hard and fast lines between leisure and labour are not are not being kept to
0: can we sort of think about that a little bit more because how that changes the experience of work I'm kind of interested in which may have all sorts of other kinds of effects because certainly you know the idea that you join a, an organisation or a company and you become inducted into it and you build mm. a relationship with colleagues and you become you know, the, the, the management tries to get you to abide by the culture and outlook and align your goals with the company and firm and so forth it seems to me that's very difficult to cultivate that when you're working at home I mean over the pandemic I've employed people that I've never met other than online so that's a very different kind of working relationship with some good things about it and some bad things about it and it certainly seems to me that it, may, it might make people feel uh, in one way disconnected from their employers or having a different kind of relationship a more a more contractual relationship with them which again could be good and bad and change the way people feel about how work um, feeds into their identity and their sense of life it becomes a thing they do but it isn't necessarily what they're defined but I don't know I just feel all these things are up in the air I don't know if you have any yeah
1: I mean I've, I've certainly seen a lot of discussions in the business press you know sort of the FT and so on around exactly that kind of scenario, Alan, where. You've had, you know, people joining because the pandemic has gone on for so long, hiring new people, possibly new, you know, new graduates, even who haven't maybe worked um, full time in a job ever. And there, you know, they're, they're, there's been a large debate around all the kind of issues that you mentioned in terms of things like culture and, and you know, co- camaraderie. But but with a kind of more um, critical hat on, you can kind of think, well, maybe all of that is just a way that employers use to to gain um, you know, uh, a higher degree of exploitation of their workers, you know, I mean, um, and in a sense that could be, as you say, that could be a good thing if, if they do think about work in a more, more kind of contractualized way, in a more kind of um, cynical way, because they're no longer engaging in, um, you know, all of these activities which are supposed to make work your life. I mean, that could be very, very good in terms of um, rebalancing us away from a world in which our identities are so caught up in work. But on the other hand, Work is now smeared across all of our, all of our lives, you know, um, and there's, there's less kind of demarcation points. So you can see it's kind of going in both directions simultaneously, and I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work itself out over time.
2: What can governments do to help us through this? We've had the job retention scheme. That's probably kept the economy going to some degree. But what could they do now to help us through this and to help us get out the other side of it?
3: I think that there are two pillars that should be uh, considered. The first is to create opportunities to everybody, regardless of the previous employment, to reskill, to retrain. And the second, to consider mental health because the picture outlined before is pretty alarming, but if you consider students, so younger generation, it's even more alarming. And we know that these types of stress can become traumas and can have a longer-term impact on people's life. So over a quarter, 26% of students reported to feel alone, often or always. In comparison to 8% of the adult population in Great Britain in the last year, almost two thirds of students uh, they replied to surveys that their own well-being and mental health has worsened since autumn 2020. So these are really dramatic figures and the government and local authorities should think about the importance of mental health. And this is an opportunity coming from such a big shock that was the pandemic.
2: Alex, in your book, you talk about um, having a future where uh, beyond work, a world, a world without work as such. So, I mean, do we need more radical, more radical policies after the pandemic?
1: Yes. I mean, I think... I. I... I think what we need is is is, is really to think about, um, you know, the role that work plays in our life. I think that the fact that the pandemic has denaturalized work—it's—it's—it's it's, it's made us look at it um, anew—is is a helpful starting point to to trying to think, maybe a little bit more radically about um, the future of work. I think certainly that you know, there is now much more room for flexibility and, you know, especially in those jobs where people can work from home, but I think this needs to be applied more broadly. I would like government to kind of put far more um, rights on the table um, and into legislation, allowing people to, to work much more flexibly. I think, you know, there we've seen the conversations around things like the four day week um, has been, um, you know, developing across this period. And I think now we can all maybe see that that's a bit more realistic than it used to be because we've all been working, you know, these crazy um, uh, kind of bespoke, unusual uh, working uh, uh, kind of time conditions. So I think there is certainly hope there for some more radical solutions. But I think that the real core to it is about how politics can be organized around it so uh, you know are there political demands for it does the um, does the new denaturalized world of work where we're looking at it and saying huh, this is how we do things now or maybe we can change things does that lead to increased organization does it lead to increased kind of calls upon upon government to actually act or does it all kind of end up being being reset to some extent um, so i think ultimately all of that is 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 kind of a political question and i'm i'm hopeful that because of the way it's denaturalized work, we are going to be able to see, you know, hopefully unions leaning a bit more onto this, hopefully um, political parties also trying to um, move a little bit more into this territory. So I think there is hope, but it all depends on, you
3: know, the actuality of the politics. I think that we should think about social equation If that's true, that automation and other technological changes are making us more productive, at the same time, it may destroy some works. In order to keep united society, it is wise to allow as much as possible to citizens to work. And if productivity increases, we may transform these productivity increases in uh, working less, but uh, allowing everybody to work. Uh, this sounds a little bit going towards what um, John Minor Keynes was mentioning in the general theory, and perhaps this would be the future. If it's not, at least it's worth thinking about it.
0: I think, I think that's right. I think for me that's part of the big sort of opening of this current moment. Over my lifetime, one of the important things that happened in the UK was that work got depoliticised, that conflicts over work and wages that used to dominate politics in the 70s became matters of individual, seemingly individual concern, that, that that were not upfront topics of discussion. And actually, it has to be upfront topics of discussion, not just about individuals' well-being, but how we actually function as a country, how we Distribute resources and goods so we get the things that we need to keep on living, how we respond to the new demands and crises that there are. So, a a politics of work would, in that sense, for me, my point of view, be a good thing.
5: Well, that's
2: all for now. Thanks to our guests, Alex Williams and Andrea Kelleff. Our reporters today were Maya Anushka and Sean Roach. Thanks to the BBC Guardian, Sky, CNN Reuters, and ITN for our news clips in the intro. And we'll be back soon with more next time. We'll be talking about violence against women. But until then, goodbye.